Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, good evening. My name is John Bunce, and I'm a real sexaholic. And what that means to me today is, uh, as I understand it, I have a uh, progressive, incurable, fatal disease. One that's so powerful it kills people that don't even have it. I have to keep that concept in my head because this disease almost took me out and only by the grace of God didn't kill some other people along the way. I talked to my sponsor about this when Mike asked me to speak and I talked to my wife. They both said the same thing. Just share your what it was like, what happened, what it's like today. But I can't help but say some of what I've already heard tonight, uh, Robin really kind of put it in a nutshell for me a little while ago, uh, talking a little bit about some of the archives she's been working on for S9, that this thing didn't just happen. When I say this thing, I'm talking about the SA and S9 fellowships, did not just happen. It's taken a lot of work, as we've talked about conventions tonight, we've talked about corrections, and some of the other things that are going on, this, this stuff just doesn't happen by itself. It's taken a lot of work, and I'm grateful that, that the people that were there before me to make this thing happen with God's hand on it, as I understand it today, uh, that these doors were open when I got here. Uh, I'd love to tell you that I walked in the doors of SA and I, and I saw them steps and Traditions hanging on the wall, and uh, you know, I thought I was beaten up enough, and I got sober, and I stayed sober from the beginning. But that's not my story. Uh, I actually got sober uh, first in Alcoholics Anonymous, 1985, and spent uh, basically 21 years foundering about uh, sober by their definition. But uh, I was certainly not sober by the definition of Sexaholics Anonymous. I got just as crazy, just as insane, just as drunk on lust as I ever did on alcohol drugs. I believe that today firmly. I spent ten years knocking around the rooms of S.A. before I got beat up enough by this disease to come to a point where I became willing to do what was being suggested. I can, I can talk about my early childhood and the things that went on there. My, my father died when I was 10. I spent many, many years uh, in AA rooms and in, in these rooms talking about how that was the point of the beginning of my disease. And in the past year or so, I've, I've come to realize that that's not true. That's certainly a traumatic event in my life, and it affects me still today. Uh, I'm 56 years old, or will be here in a few months, and uh, I still carry... That part of the uh, trauma with me, but it's, it's not the same as it was five years ago or ten years ago. It's not the same as it was a year ago, but it's still there. 
my stuff started much earlier than that. I was I was born with a uh, a uh, uh, cranial facial defect, uh, birth defect. It caused me to have serious hearing loss. Uh, I was already different from my friends, as I recalled, and I was in speech therapy, and I, I had to wear hearing aids, and I got special treatment in school, and all this kind of thing. And I just knew I was different from all my friends. And uh, I don't know that that caused my sexaholism or my alcoholism, or my drug addiction issues. I just know today it's part of my story. And I went along, and after my daddy died, it was just very, very much more intense that I was different than my friends. I was different from the other kids at school. And I started becoming an isolator and a loner, and I started putting on that, uh, uh, living that double life. Very soon thereafter, I was uh, introduced to tobacco by some friends, and I found that as a way of escape for a while. Uh, a boy in the neighborhood introduced me, uh, uh, myself and some other guys, to uh, what we call today some mild pornography, but that was all we could get a hold of at that time. He showed me how he was getting it, and that was by shoplifting it from uh, the store in the town where we lived. I grew up in a small town in southern Ohio, and uh, <clears throat> so I started shoplifting pornography. Very soon thereafter, masturbation entered into the picture, and I kept stealing pornography. Started pretty soon shoplifting cigarettes. Uh, any form of tobacco I could get a hold of. That was another medicator. I got caught shoplifting one time by the uh, merchant that owned the store. He called the chief of police in our hometown, and uh, it's one of those towns where everybody knows everybody, and the chief of police called my grandfather. My grandfather called my mother, and they came down and got me. And this is where I began getting these mixed messages about sexuality. Uh, I got I got chewed out for stealing. Nothing was ever said about what I was stealing. Nothing. Uh, my mother was uh, at times physically and verbally abusive. When my mother uh, disciplined one of us kids, I had two older sisters, uh, she typically drew blood. And uh, that was her way. I guess it was the way she was brought up. I never really thought that was unusual. I thought it was kind of normal because I saw some of the other guys in my neighborhood that uh, they, got some, they got some pretty good beatings as well. And just thought that was normal. It's just the way it was. I didn't get a whipping over that stealing the pornography. I didn't get grounded. I, they thought it was this troubled young man. That I was about 12 or 13. I was already kind of fading out of life, losing track of time and so forth. Uh, but uh, that was about the extent of it. They thought this young boy who had lost his daddy and he was, was struggling with that, and this was just normal kind of thing. Uh, I went on to eventually begin smoking uh, marijuana. The age of 16, started drinking beer. Never really liked the taste of it, but when I got enough of it in me to get the effect. And so I was masturbating to pornography and uh, smoking dope and drinking alcoholically by the time I was 17, 18 years old. And uh, I was off and running. Eventually that led to a marriage with a woman who was... Uh, Seven, six years older than myself, who had five kids. I was pumping gas in a gas station for $3.15 an hour. Uh, seemed like the thing to do. Uh, 
Might have been some kind of hint that uh, my thinking wasn't exactly right. Uh, we had uh, we engaged in, in sex on our second date with two of her kids asleep in the back seat of that car while we had sex in the front seat at a drive-in movie. Should have thought something, but I was too excited. I was in love at that point. Uh, and you know that was that was that was a big part of my stuff. Just wanting to be loved, because I didn't feel loved by my mother. My mother shut down emotionally after my father died. Uh, rest of the family, I I grew up in a family where people held grudges, and I learned to hold a grudge somehow by osmosis or whatever. Uh, part of the deal was you don't talk about whatever. You know, we we talk about don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. I had a uh, an uncle and his wife who lived right across the road from from another uncle and his family that I visited often as a child, and I didn't know that uncle was ex- ex- even existed until I was like 32 or 33 years old. About that same time, uh, my sisters and I and our families were all visiting my mother, and there was a knock at the door, and my youngest sister went to the door and come back and said, Mom, there's some lady named Lily and her husband Frank at the door. And my older sister jumped up and said, Aunt Lily. Well, who's Aunt Lily? I've never heard of her. That was the kind of uh, family I grew up with on my mother's side of the family. Now, on my daddy's side, I had two sets of grandparents. Never thought anything about it. My, my maternal grandparents had passed away when I was very young. Actually, my grandmother... Uh, passed away before I was born, and my grandfather when I was about three or four months old. But uh, <clears throat> my uh, grandparents had married and divorced twice. Uh, I guess the first time they didn't figure out that they weren't compatible. I don't know. Uh, but they had both, uh, my grandmother, I come to find out, had been uh, married a total of four times. And uh, my grandfather married this, this woman who was... Uh, had a very sharp tongue and a, was, uh, for whatever reason, angry with, with most people. And it's the kind of people I grew up with. Not their fault that I'm a sexaholic, but I did learn, well, I didn't learn good uh, relationship skills from these people. Uh, uh, I learned a lot of dysfunctionality, but at the same time, there was a lot of good stuff with these people, and I've seen that in recovery today. Uh, I'm able to see that there was, uh, they weren't all bad. But again, it's not their fault that I'm a sexaholic and that I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict and a liar and a cheat and a thief and a few other things. Uh, that's just that's my disease. I, I understand that today. And it doesn't really matter how I got here. I have this progressive... Uh, incurable, fatal disease, and I have to do something or I'm going to die, and I'm going to take some other people with me. In my 10 years of knocking around the rooms of Sexaholics Anonymous, I'd come for a while, and uh, you know, we talk about uh, chronic relapse. I, I never really consider, I don't consider today that I, I was a chronic relapser because I never really considered that I got sober. Today I have a different understanding of that concept. Uh, simply being abstinent and being sober are two different things. And for me, uh, and I don't, I don't put that on anybody else, 
It's my understanding, because I certainly was not emotionally and spiritually sober by any stretch of the imagination, although I did have uh, some longer periods of abstinence. Today I stand up here and say I'm, I'm four years, 11 months, and one week abstinent. How long have I been sober? Uh, probably roughly around four and a half years, somewhere in there, what I consider real sobriety today. Because I knocked around the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for 21 years in these rooms, like I said, for 10 years, uh, without working the steps. Not drinking, not drugging. Sometimes not masturbating and doing some of the other things I was doing. Uh, I could certainly have been arrested for some of the things I did. Uh, I come close once. I was detained, but the handcuffs didn't go on. That's the only question I didn't check off in the 20-question thing. I gave a half a mark. Uh, they say if you answer two or three, I believe it is, in the positive, you're probably a sexaholic. I had 19 and a half. And was still wondering. Well, maybe I overreacted. Uh, what I have found through the years and, and through my experience that uh, uh, there's a lot of ways to get sidetracked from what's really going on. And, and I had become very adept at living a double life. And I could sit in these rooms and I can talk the talk while I wasn't walking the walk. And we talked about that a little while ago back to table. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, it, it's real easy to pick up the lingo. Lingo is easy to pick up. And you can spout it in these rooms. But I can tell you what, uh, on my, my experience has been that you can sit in these rooms and be abstinent and be miserable as hell. Suicidal, in fact, because I was. When I went out there this last time, I, I called my sponsor who happened to be in an AA event. And we had just uh, talked about doing step three about three weeks before that. And uh, I was all gung-ho, and here I called him this day, and I... I had had this spiritual awakening that I just wasn't willing to go to any lengths and do what it said in the books. I'm going to step away from SA for a while. His response to me, according to him, was, if you stay on this path, you may drink again. What I heard was, if you stay on this path, you're going to drink again. And that was a good resentment that kept me acting out for another about nine months. And when I'd gotten out there and gotten beat up enough by my disease and, and my stuff included internet uh, chat rooms and pornography and uh, uh, webcam activities and some of the other insanity I was doing and, and meeting uh, strange people in strange places and, and having sex where no one knew where I was at, uh, I was certainly risking my life. Along that time, I came down with Bell's palsy, and, and my face was partially paralyzed, and that led to some things, so I stopped meeting people. But I kept on doing this crazy stuff on the Internet, and I was in these hotel rooms uh, traveling for my business, and I'd be on the Internet till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, having to be at work at 7 the next morning, and, and wondering why I was tired and sick and, and hungover, and, and all this stuff was going on. But it took going to the point of where I was not taking care of business. Now, I became a, I became a cheap drunk. And uh, I would go to free porn sites and free chat rooms and so forth and so on. 
uh, trying to be frugal uh, in my mind anyway. That's the way my mind works. My, my, my mind worked in such a fashion that I uh, we have two bathrooms in our house where I would masturbate and I would turn the Venetian blinds so that God could not look through the cracks and see me in the bathroom. That's the way my mind worked. Now, uh, that's just plain insanity. That's, that's, that's crazy. In my mind today, I can understand that. Back then, I couldn't. But that's the way my brain was working. And until it uh, it looked like my uh, business was going bankrupt, and uh, you know, my wife was uh, surely about ready to throw me out of the house, uh, although she swore she would never give me a divorce one day when she caught me acting out with some lady on the Internet. Uh, which, uh, well, I won't tell you what my judgment was of that situation, but uh, I was certainly nuts. Uh, when I finally got to that point of, of one night uh, acting out till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and getting a couple hours sleep and got back up, and got back on the internet in his hotel room in Memphis, Tennessee, and was acting out again. Uh, I guess I'd finally had enough. Now, Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous says that uh, most alcoholics, or for us, most sexaholics, have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Uh, one of my more favorite pages on page 48, it talks about. Lust is the great persuader finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. When I was about three months sober, I called my sponsor and I said, you know, I feel like I've been unreasonably beaten. I said, hold on to that thought because you're going to need it. Uh, but that's what I felt like that, that morning. And a fellow called me that uh, had walked into these rooms with me about the same time, my second go-around in 1999, and uh, he asked me how it was going, and I basically told him what was happening, and said, I don't know what to do. Uh, 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 I'm tired of living, I'm scared of dying, and I, I just don't know what to do. He said, well, have you prayed about it? Well, no. <laughs> well, why don't you pray about it and call me back? So I did. I, I, I pulled off the road where I was uh, 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 driving around Memphis, and, and, and I just, God, what should I do? I don't know what to do. And that was, just, that was the best I could do at the time. And I went on down the road a little ways, and I saw this bumper sticker from a car with Knox County plates, which is on the other side of Tennessee from where I was at. And I don't know, I don't remember what the bumper sticker said. All I know is of a recovery. It was a 12-step bumper sticker. And the only thing I got out of it is, stay sober the rest of this day. I called this guy back and I said, that's, that's all I got. Stay sober the rest of this day. He said, well, can you not masturbate, not get on the internet today? Well, I think I can. And I did. That was February 8th of 2006. Since then, uh, I'm not going to tell you I've been lust-free, but I've been free not to lust, and, and I have also been free not to get on the Internet and look at pornography. I haven't been in chat rooms. 
I've been doing webcam activities. I've not been in the bookstore or picked up a prostitute or any of the other things I was doing when I was out there in my disease. Uh, and that's certainly not by my power. Uh, John tried to run John's life for 51 years. and, and uh, There's a lot of stuff there's just not enough time to talk about tonight. But in that 51 years, I pretty well made a wreck out of myself. And... uh and these past four years, 11 months and one week, <clears throat> I am just amazed at some of the things that have gone on in my life. I want you to remember that first 51 years that I've shared with you in some of my stuff because that's what John's doing did. John's doing made a wreck out of things. But what has happened in my life in these four years and 11 months, was I called that guy who I had fired as a sponsor and asked him to take me back, and he graciously did, because he had something I wanted. The man's on... Now, I didn't particularly want to be on the sex offender registry, which this man is. I didn't want to lose my uh, career, which this man did. didn't want to lose my family, which this man did. But this this guy was sitting in these meetings in the midst of these circumstances that would make the average man drink his head off. And he had serenity and peace of mind. Now this man had a medical career and, and I don't I don't typically hang around with those kind of folks. Uh, I'm a blue collar factory worker and that's typically the kind of people I hang around with. But what I saw in this man was a light in his eyes. I saw peace in his heart. And I I heard joy from his lips. That I wanted. I've been beaten enough at that point to ask him to show me how he got there. I became willing to do what he did to get to where he's at. And it, it started out very simply. So open, open and close your days on page 86, 87, 88 at a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Read two to four pages a day in that book. Read a couple pages a day in some other spiritual literature. I want you an X number of meetings. I want you to call me X number of times a week. I want you to stay current. I want you to do a whole series of things that we got into over a period of time. He didn't come to run my life. He came to, he came to run my recovery. He didn't want to run my life. He had enough business to take care of just keeping his own stuff together. He started taking me through the steps. Now, I sat in a meeting today where we talked about let go and let God, and, and we talked about working the... Uh, uh, process of the second step out of the step into action. Now, he did something a little different. He had me take a sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle. And on one side, put uh, images of God as I grew up with God in my childhood. And I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian religion in a small town where you could go to hell for saying damn. I mean, it was just that kind of, kind of stuff, uh, among many others. And then on the other side of that page, he had me write down 
uh, a list of qualities I would like to see in God or would like, like to believe that God is. And then we sat down and talked about that, and he uh, helped me expand on it a little bit. He said, now fold your paper and tear your page in half, okay? So I did that and set it on the table, and he said, now pick one. <laughs> now wait a minute. The stuff I grew up with, this kind of stuff right here, you go to hell for that. I was definitely afraid. I was afraid to turn to God, but I was afraid to offend Him either because I felt like God had been messing with me my whole life. I blame God for everything. One of the guys was sharing this meeting this afternoon, and I, I remember intensely one day having a flat tire in my truck and pulling over to the side of the road and stopping and looking up and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? And when I heard these people sharing this kind of stuff this afternoon, I realized that that was egotistically uh, self-centered in me, uh, that I was so important that God, who's in my mind today big enough to handle my problems and yours too, has nothing better to do than give me a flat tire. And I began to learn, and I actually had to be told, you're just not that important. (laughs) And there are a lot of other things that I would love to tell you, and we just, like I say, we just don't have the room tonight. But I can tell you, I I worked at Third Step with him, and there's a nine-piece process to that. I'm getting ready to take a sponsee through that next week. There's nine little pieces to Step 3 in the big book that we go through. And when I got through that and, and we got down on our knees in his apartment and said a third step prayer, and that was my, uh, quote, official, unquote, third step. But my real third step took place about two, three weeks later in my living room when I fell on my knees in tears and I angst over my situation in life and what was going on. And I cried out. I said, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me be? And that's all I could do at the time. And it wasn't too long after that I had a, I had a, uh, an emotional, great emotional upheaval. I went out to the barn to get the mower out and I couldn't get the handle to pop down and the lawnmower into place. I just didn't have the energy to do it. And uh, broke down in tears, bawling like a baby. I was so emotionally distraught over the wreck I had made in my marriage, wreck I had made in my business and my life and so forth. And my wife uh, uh, found me in that condition. And uh, I couldn't get out what was going on. And she said, well, you want me to call Steve? Steve is my sponsor. I said, yeah. So she got my phone. We managed to get the fast dial working. She called Steve. Steve came to the house and... uh, I thought we talked for 45 minutes or so. He says he was there for four hours. I'm not sure. Uh, I do remember that he refused to leave my house until I called somebody. As you remember, he's on the, he's on the sex offender registry. He's a convicted felon. So he couldn't take the weapons out of the house. So I had to call somebody to come to my house to take the guns out of my house. Now, I don't remember threatening my life, but apparently he thinks I did. Uh, I ended up taking the ammunition to somebody else. And uh, 
Now, that stuff was out of the house for a while, and I sold some of those guns just to get them out of my possession or out of my access anyway, uh, and some of that kind of stuff. And what has happened in the interim between that time where I was about three months abstinent and three and a half years later or thereabouts, I called him one day and was talking about some financial fear, which I had. There's still wreckage. I'm still trying to clean up the wreckage of what I created uh, out there financially. I called him up about what was going on. We talked about it for a minute. Now, uh, at the time the guns were removed from the house, he lived in Nashville, same city I do. Now he lives in Memphis, 200 miles away. And he says, we got to the end of that conversation. He said, she said, you know, I'm glad today that I don't have to drive to your house and have, have you have somebody come and get the guns out of your house. Because I still, I own guns today, but I'm not a danger to myself or anybody else. He is comfortable with the fact of, of what he has, has uh, God has done through him to help me uh, recover that when I have financial fear uh, or whatever other stuff is going on, that I'm not in this place of great emotional upheaval and disturbance. Healing has taken place, begun to take place, and there's a lot, lot further for me to go. And I'm... Uh, I got a long ways to go, but in the past few years, I was given the opportunity to chair an international convention. Uh, I got moved on to the International Convention Committee uh, for SA and get to participate on that, and they actually let me chair that committee. And uh, you know, that's not what I've done; it's what God has done through me, uh, uh, for me. And I had a couple of people come up to me today and, and tell me what a uh, uh, how I've affected their lives, and that's not me. That's what God has done through me and uh, for me, through you. This truly is a we program. Today I get to stand up here and, and, and be one of y'all. And for you guys that stood out to sit out there today and said, thank you for letting me be here, we didn't just let you be here. We welcome you here. We want you here. We need you here. I'm honored to just be in the same room with y'all, much less be up here flapping my gums for 30 minutes. Uh, It is an honor, a true honor to be with you folks because this is home. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.